ideally, conceptually, you know, for your own well-being, for the growth of your company, taking that off your plate, giving someone else the job of dealing with 90% of your email is going to do so many positive things, give you free time for exercise, to see your family, to write a book or grow your company. And then of course, it's going to mean you have more attention to all the things that you're, the people you work with are asking of you. You're not doing that in email. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking, and achieve significant HR success. Hello, and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JGA Recruitment Group, specialist HR recruiters. Now, whether you are listening to this podcast for the first time or listening to it for the hundredth time, please let me take this opportunity to say thank you for joining me today, especially if you want to improve your skills in delegation or time management, or if you just want to learn from a hugely successful angel investor, entrepreneur, and business coach, because today I am joined by Yaro Starak, who is the co-founder of InboxDone.com. A lot more about that later on in, in the show. But essentially, it's an email management company that enables business leaders to achieve more. Wouldn't we all like that? Yao has made over 30 successful angel investments in tech startups, including Steezy, Lead IQ, Fluent Forever, Fitbod, and NutriSense. And in partnership, he's even built a 3.6 megawatt solar farm. Yes, you heard that correctly. More about that later on. During the mid-2000s, Yara built an online education company. For those L&D professionals listening to this, you may be interested. It was called blogmastermind.com, where he sold over 2 million of his books and online courses. And he's been featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, Huffington Post, Founder, Pro Blogger, Social Media Marketing Word, Upwork, and many, many more media outlets. He even has his own podcast, as you can see there in front of me for those watching, called Vested Capital. So Yara, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? Uh, after that intro, Nick, I feel I feel like I, I can't live up to my own expectations. I <laughs> hearing the whole thing, you know. But thank you. It's a it's a it's a career there. You've talked about you know, twenty years of my life. But thank Absolutely. you for having me. No, well, it's a it's a very impressive career. I will put some links in the show notes as well for those interested. You can find out a lot more about some of your achievements. But before we jump into that, I'm going to ask the first question, which I ask every uh, guest I have on the show: What do the words human resources mean to you? Yeah, it's funny that question. I was thinking I have a real love hate feeling about that question. Because on one side, <laughs> I think about it and I go, oh, that's hiring. And I'm terrible at that. But on the flip side, I also think of that as, oh, that's having other people hire and build the team for me, which ultimately is what leads to growth in a company. So I'm also very excited about doing that job well. It's just something I haven't personally done very well sure. before. But yeah, it's so important. <laughs> I imagine it's something you're pretty heavily involved in at startup phase as well, right? Then which HR gets kind of involved in every part of that process from defining your culture and your goals, your organizational frameworks, and of course, that recruitment piece as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I should say I, I do think of it more as I was answering that question more in the recruitment side, but you're so right. There's more to it than just hiring people, right? It's it's really about yeah. building culture. And and my co-founder currently, Claire, she's the one who's done an amazing job uh, with our current business anyway, uh, regarding that. It always blows my mind, the little details that are involved with HR that you don't think about. 
For sure, for sure. And I love a shout out as well. So well done, Claire. Yeah. Sounds like she's got a lot on her plate. So let's <laughs> start, start with this. For those, I've read all about your profile. I've looked into your work and the stuff that you do. I've invited you onto the show for that very reason. A very, very impressive chat record. But for those not familiar with yourself, Yaro, tell us a little bit about how you got started as an online entrepreneur and a little bit more perhaps meat on the bones furthering on from that, uh, that introduction. Yeah, so um, very fortuitous, born in the late 90s, not born, <laughs> enrolled in university in the late 1990s, kind of wish I was born in the late 1990s <laughs> now, but um, so I was 18, 19 when that dot-com boom was happening. And that was great because it showed me an avenue for a potential new career. I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, wasn't sure what kind of business it would be. So thankfully, free internet account was given to me when I enrolled in university in, in Australia, where I was born. And that kind of began a love affair with the internet. I started a card gaming website about the game Magic the Gathering. For those who might still know that game, it's hugely popular today. It was hugely popular back then. Uh, kind of like my first business, not really, more like a side hustle. Made $500 a month sort of selling cards. I had a few advertisers on my little magazine style website. Yeah. Early, early days, you know, before blogging, before social media. Um, while in university, though, I started, I guess, my first real business. It was an online essay editing company called Better Edit. Uh, and, and really, it was my first full-time income stream. After graduating, I focused on that company, um, grew it to like a small team, and eventually sold that business and sold the card game business, uh, not for retirement money by any means, but it was, you know, <laughs> buy your first car kind of money sort of stuff at the time in my 20s, um, which led to what became my, a long-time career for me, the, the blogging, podcasting, and then becoming an educator, which honestly, I didn't see that happening. But once you start producing content, as you know, you do build a following if, if you do it well. Yeah. And that turned into the potential to sell what I eventually did sell, which was course, mostly courses, some eBooks, um, some coaching programs. It really was a, a big course called Blog Mastermind that I sold for two versions over a decade. I just actually closed that one down just uh, earlier uh, or January this year. So um yeah, well, it kind of feels a little sad, you know, closing down your baby <laughs> after 10 years, but yeah, it's been a good run. Uh, and that was like my main uh, business. I loved it, you know, sitting in cafes, writing, running, you know, coaching lessons, creating content. It's just a great business to be in, especially you can travel with it. You can make very good money. That's when I kind of uh, upskilled, started making, you know, multiple seven figures a year, which allowed me to buy property, travel, all those sorts of things. Uh, to then kind of today, kind of fast forward it in the last five years, I've been very much focused on Inbox Done, my current company. Um, and in between all that, things like angel investing, travel, property investing have, have cropped in too. But it's it's just been one long uh, internet business love affair in my mind. So <laughs> Yeah, no, it sounds... I mean, one thing that really comes through when we do some research into what you've done, look at your blog, look at different sites, you've, you've, written, you've published six books in total. So you've always been very, very busy. I'll probably come into a little bit later on in terms of how you've managed that. But something that's really, I guess, must have been critical during your journey. You mentioned that you've, you've built small teams on several occasions. Surely, for, if you're doing that all the time, you must be a bit of an expert at delegating. I'm going to make an assumption here to say, okay, Inbox Done has probably come out of one of that those passion pieces for delegation. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how, you know, I guess what motivated you to begin to look into delegation as a business concept, I guess. Um, and, yeah. and, and how, you know, what systems you'd recommend others use in building their, in building their businesses. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's two phases for me. There's the, I'm a solo entrepreneur doing most of it myself, you know, maybe task outsourcing, you know, do a little bit here with a web developer and then hitting a wall, uh, you know, getting not burnt out, but certainly doing too much work for one person and just don't have, I don't have the skills to do everything. So yeah. that's kind of like realization number one, 
I need to build a team. Um, and that's a that's confronting because I didn't get into entrepreneurship entrepreneurship to do HR. It's it's kind of the irony of it, but that's the truth. To grow a company, that is the most important aspect is the people you bring in. So um, I failed at it honestly for a long time. Like I I got okay at bringing in a couple of key people, like a website developer, you know, a copywriter, but never really grew a massive team and. That's probably what held my my essay editing company back. Um, that and my own decision. I didn't really want to be in that industry for longer than I was. Five years, I was done with it. So when I exited that, part of the blogging business was, wow, this is really elegant. I, I can do a lot with a small team. So that business, I was able to run it to you know half a million a year kind of revenue with a very small, mostly contract-based team. Uh, it's funny though, because Fast forward maybe eight years, so maybe six, seven years into that business, I was like, you know what? I want to take this to this next level. I have to hire properly. And that's when I really was like, okay, delegations, this is serious. I have to have a better hiring process. I have to actually care about testing and vetting and training and all the things you do in yeah. HR and, and building a team and make sure everyone's got clear communication and who's to, I had to be a better leader. And I knew all those things and I kind of sucked up and I failed. And, and to be honest, it came through because I, I went through like six different people at one point in a very short period of time. Some of it was just because I was rushing hiring and just saying yes to anyone. Um, and that led to a realization I needed to hire someone to hire. I need to hire someone. I needed an HR manager. I didn't call yeah. her that at the time, yeah. but that's what I needed. So I ended up bringing on Laura and that kind of you know part luck, part just a good referral network. I brought someone in who had the temperament. She wasn't HR to begin with, but she was ready to become an HR person and, and build that skill set, as well as having the foundation of a, a good communication, good empathy. She could actually build a culture without me realizing she was doing that. So she took over hiring and built a, a kind of a small team for my company. Uh, well, that was my education business. And then fast forward to what I do today, well and truly, I knew when I started my new company, this is a team business. I we we are providing a service where we're delegate, like we're we're the place people delegate to for their email, yeah. and we're also needing to delegate ourselves in the sense that we're building a remote team, and I need someone to be that when we call her a CEO, but she, you know ultimately she's an operations HR kind of position. So Claire, I mentioned earlier, I partnered with her. She was my uh, one of my email assistants for my education business. But I saw that she was a leader. She had attention to detail. She really could build something in, a, in an area where I felt I was not competent at. And I was good at marketing. I was good at kind of pushing the business forward. So I said, let's try it, see if this works. And that's what she's done. So she kind of runs a you know, team of 35 now. And, and she's the one who's built all these systems around hiring and training and how to deal with situations and onboarding. And we have a 10-step hiring, testing, vetting, training, yeah, and education process yeah. for our for our team. So, you know, she, she gets all credit for building that. And I get credit for choosing to partner with her as a co-founder. So. So, well, I mean, someone, I mean, you built not just one, but several sort of seven figure businesses. The thing that resonates for me here and what I think will resonate for my audience, you know, if you're an HR professional and whether you're Claire or, or Laura or, or anyone listening to this podcast, chances are you're plate spinning. You're holding up several plates at the same time, trying to keep them all in the air, not letting know which one to drop. In your experience, when you're plate spinning, not just within one business, but you've got ideas on others, you're trying to scale a business, you're investing, you've got fingers, not spies. Typically at your level, you know, what are the what are the plates we must keep spinning ourselves? You know, we, we you know, we have to the last one to let drop, I guess is the first question. The second bit is what's the the quickest plate we can delegate in your experience? Yeah, I, I will speak totally from my experience here because I feel like it's different for everyone, but sure. 
I was very much a theories of constraints follower. Um, I'm not sure if you heard this concept, but it's from manufacturing. Uh, Toyota really popularized it. And they built a, a manufacturing process, as we all know, to build cars. And it's very interconnected. If one aspect of that system is broken or slowing down, the whole system starts to really decay. And that's because everything is tightly wound together. There's no sort of flexibility in that. And that's deliberate because they want everything to be as fast as it can. Yeah. And because of that, they see where the weakness is straight away. They go, oh, this part is slowing down everything else. So I kind of applied that to myself when I took this seriously. I was like, well, what do I want to do next? And what part of me spinning the plate am I doing the worst job at where I really need to hand that plate over to someone else? So early days, not that I talked about it in this way, but basically I was doing this. I would say, oh, well, I can't build websites. Let's hire someone to build websites. And then very quickly, once the business actually worked, I was doing email all day. So email was the second thing I considered a priority. And that's kind of the origin story of Inbox Done. It goes back yeah. 15 years ago, but I handed over email to a university friend at the time for that essay editing company. And that broke me free because my goal then was lifestyle business. I wanted a four-hour week Tim Ferriss style business. <laughs> and that's what my essay editing company was. I had a tech person doing tech. I had uh, another uh, friend doing the email and that business kind of ran itself mostly. Fast forward, of course, with sort of the bigger companies I've had in more recent years, those two things were handed from day one. I never started building websites myself, and I never started doing email from scratch myself. There was always someone in place as soon as I could financially afford it, usually because I was putting in you know, a bit of my own capital to start with. So going forward from there, though, then it got a little bit more nuanced. That's when I, I started thinking, oh, well, co-founders, um, it's not what you think about, I guess, as an HR manager. But for me, I think when I look for co-founders, that's kind of one of the main characteristics I look for is team building uh, operations type people. Sure. So that's a plate that I know for scale I need to solve. And in the past, I didn't want to scale or I held myself back, so I didn't necessarily do that. But certainly today... I look more for that. Um, and then it's more of a case-by-case -case basis. Like I know my strengths. I, I can sit and write. I feel comfortable with the writing part, uh, part of it. But what else do you need? Well, you know, you need to have, in my case right now, maybe engineering for software as a new project I'm working on. So you know, I'm not going to do that. Um, what's tricky? I think it's very, and this is, I think, a good answer for entrepreneurs. There's the things that we're great at and we love doing. There's the things that we're okay at and we tend to do anyway. And then there's the things we're absolutely no, we, we're not good at. It's easy to, to hand over the not good things because we just hate doing them. Like the bookkeeper is going to do the accounting. Sure. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The webmaster is probably going to do the webmastering. But there's those in-between things where like I am a good writer. So maybe I should also be the copywriter and I should write all my sales pages for my products. And I should write every single email and every single piece of content. But then you are the constraint because that's a crazy amount of content you need to create. And you know maybe you are good enough, but really there are people better at a sales page, better at an email sequence, better at content marketing. You know Maybe some are all of those things. So for example, I brought in a copywriter to build the sales page for a lot of my courses I sold online. And that like had to happen because I, I would have been spinning too many writing plates in order to be able to function as a business owner. So, but that was hard to do because I was like comfortable doing that. I liked doing writing. I felt like yeah, I, sure. I should be the one writing the sales page. So, um, and that, that's probably the biggest challenge is, is that middle ground uh, and pushing all that off your plate and delegating those things. So let's have a little chat then about inbox done because this is an interesting one for me because if I, if I use that 
example you've just given things you you know you're great at do things you're not so great at you can do a little bit maybe outsource some of it things you don't like get rid of email is something that i imagine most most people listening to this now like they dread their email but they if, if and I'll, i'm definitely one of these people i'm, I'm definitely um someone that is uh, handcuffed to my email and i feel like there's no one else that would be able to manage it in the way that i can for whatever reason that is it maybe it's ego maybe it's because as you say i feel like i'm just good at it but actually it's also the the, the stone that holds you down right because it's so hard to break free from <laughs> yeah. it and to turn it off and to it's suddenly your day is gone so for someone who's you know, built a company on the back of this this must be a common objection for people it's something so precious to give away it's almost like it's part of me to give away my email it's my voice so you know what what, what would you say to someone like yeah. me in this position who could probably benefit or could definitely benefit from outsourcing some of my email content but is probably a little bit reticent to do so have you never tried no i would do it it would scare never me it doesn't mean i wouldn't <laughs> but it would definitely scare me for sure you're speaking i think uh, a common feeling a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners have about yeah, their email. And it's funny, like um, literally just before I spoke to you, I just did a, a sales call and, you know, business owner uh, closer to retirement age than you are very happy to hand over email. One of the easiest calls I've ever done. It's like, okay. this is what we do. Oh, he wants it. He clicks the buy button, signs up, away you go. Then there's, yeah, the people and, and I don't want to insult you here, Nick, but there's sometimes certain people <laughs> where they like the idea of it, but control freak itis just they can't let go um the the whole idea like we've had one person very early days has made me laugh they signed up they were totally excited really want to do it they start handing over to us and then within a week they're like i can't do this i i can't i don't feel comfortable if i don't see every single email if an email is actually replied to without me I, that gives me stress <laughs> so yeah. you know they canceled they couldn't handle it and, and there's a spectrum obviously ideally conceptually you know, for your own well-being, for the growth of your company, taking that off your plate, giving someone else the job of dealing with 90% of your email is going to do so many positive things, give you free time for exercise, to see your family, to write a book or grow your company. And then of course, it's going to mean you have more attention to all the things that you're, the people you work with are asking of you. You're not doing that in email. And not to mention people tend to use email as a to-do list, which is not a great thing to do because sure. very rarely is your email an actual priority list of things that will move your business and your life forward. It's just whatever's in your inbox. So you don't want to, you know, just guide yourself each day based on email. So first of all, you know, you make the decision to do that. Those kind of people we like to work with because they're motivated to push through the discomfort of saying, okay, it's going to feel weird, but someone else is going to reply to my messages. Maybe the first few times they write these drafts, I'm not going to be like, oh my God, that's perfect, but I'm going to give them some training. They're going to get better at it. And then eventually they probably will get better at it than I am because they're going to do that every day. They're going to deal with the email every day. That's obviously not 100% of your emails. There will probably always be 5% that you know are for you. You know, We build systems with Inbox Done when we onboard a client. And it's quite an extensive process where we're doing what we call triage. So what does Nick have to answer? It's in his brain, we can't extract it, or it's a relationship that only Nick has, or he simply feels he has to do it. That's for him. But 95%, it's, it's like an email from a, a general query. How do I download this? Or a software update or a newsletter or a sales email, all these things that are micro attention grabbers for you right now, but we take them completely off your plate. So you never see them. You don't need to, you know, they're, they're handled by someone else. So it works so well for the right people. And 
I, as a thankfully from the very early days, was so looking for ways to break free of whatever was taking the majority of my time. So I was like, email clearly, just based on how I run my life, is one of the biggest time sucks. So I was like, yeah. I got to outsource this, and I think for the right people, they feel the same and they and they do it. But you're so right. With as I do a lot of the marketing. There's an education process here. People, for whatever reason, they they totally used to saying, "I will send the bookkeeping to the bookkeeper. I will yeah. send the website development to the website." I do that, manager. and I do that. Yeah. Hands up, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they don't think I will send the email to the email manager. You know, they they always think, "No, I'm the email manager." So we have to kind of show them how this works, how to get comfortable with it. There is a careful handover process. We are going to learn about you. We're going to build systems. Uh, we're going to practice, and then you're going to get more and more comfortable handing over more and more. So, Nick, I hope one day we can say the same thing for yeah. you. <laughs> well, it's interesting actually. Just giving that example, I realized that I referenced my email uh, to say that I'm handcuffed to it, and I don't know if that's like so, something in my subconscious there that's telling me that it's that's not a good relationship, right? I didn't think of anything better than a handcuff. Yeah, um, but look, look, I'm not alone though, right? There must be. I mean, certainly the HR leaders out there, they're trying to change culture they're trying to improve inclusion diversity recruit top talent restructure businesses go through transformations implement software all these different things they're doing i'm definitely not alone as a leader here who suffers from what i would call an inverted commas of email overwhelm so you mentioned in that answer there a lot of people use emails as their to-do list can you tell us a little bit more about how, you know, obviously a simple fix would be give the business straight to, to uh, inbox done, but are there other sort of tri tricks or hacks that you can suggest to HR leaders out there that perhaps want to just, I guess, lessen the burden of that email overwhelm? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this, especially when you're looking in, in HR and maybe, you know, you're not the owner of a company, the boss might not like the idea of someone else answering your emails for you, that there can be a sense of discomfort around that. And, then we, and we have worked with people who work within companies. Sometimes we actually write emails as if we're you, like we would write as Nick and reply as Nick. That's uncommon, but sometimes it's necessary. But to answer your question, there's a lot you can do to get started just simply by changing your mindset around email and going, okay, I'm not going to guide my day by opening my inbox and just sitting there and replying to messages. That conscious choice is yeah. already a big change. Now, if you maintain an actual to-do list using some other method, and that's a, a properly prioritized, goal-driven, outcome-driven list of tasks, and that's what you open first in the morning, not the email, and you do something on that list. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Eat the Frog. I remember Brian Tracy's, uh, one of his very early books, and it was simply eat the frog first. So that doesn't necessarily taste nice, but do the thing that you have to do yeah. that will move things forward before you do other things. Um, email is addictive. There's a lot of fun stuff. I love email because I, I get a sale notification or a potential customer notification um, or uh, an angel investment update where something's going really well. Of course, I'm going to go to that. It's like sugar is candy, you know, but it's not necessarily moving things Productive. forward in my yeah. job. So step one, make that choice. Don't do that first. And, and I know people have followed all kinds of methodologies. You can, for example, set an autoresponder that says you're only going to respond to emails between 1 and 2 p.m. each day. So do not, respect, do not expect a reply outside of those hours. And then you tell yourself, I'm only doing email in that hour. So you can sort of self-discipline yourself around that. There's software tools, um, you know, Unroll Me will certainly help unsubscribe you from certain newsletters and just reduce the amount of newsletters you're getting. Honestly, having run this company, there's no software tool that solves this problem. All they do is tend to move emails around, put them into folders, um, 
AI hasn't reached the point where it can actually answer your emails uh, yeah. 100% for you. So we're not there yet. A lot of this is habits and how you structure your day. I personally found one of the best things you can do is actually just set up a really rudimentary, simple folder structure. I, I used to have this with my team. It was really very basic. It was three different Yarrow folders. The Yarrow folder that's not stuff that I need to really deal with. It's there. If I want to check it, I can check it. It's probably newsletters, you know, basic updates. Um, then there was the arrow needs to reply, but it's not urgent. And then there's the arrow. This is urgent. You need to reply. And I had my assistants filter the messages into that, but you could technically do this yourself. Just have those three layers of, I don't need to do anything with this, but I want to know it's there. Sure. I do need to do something with this, but it's only end of week. And then there's today, this has to be done. And I just drag each email into one of those three triage boxes. And you know, today I just have to clear that first one, which has probably only got four emails in it. And the second one I can deal with on Friday. It's just a list of everything that's not urgent. And the third one I can look at once a month or whatever and just scan it and delete it. So that's how I basically lived my life before I had a team doing it. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. I think that you've just given me some advice there. So I have a, a system that isn't definitely not as smart as that. Um, so for me, I'll open up every email that needs answering. I'll leave it open. So I have like a zillion Outlook windows open. And during the day, that's the urgent stuff. So I can't finish my day until they've all been answered. <laughs> I think maybe just putting them into a box and keeping my, my desktops tidier probably yeah. is a better process. So well, just scan it for about. the urgents, drag the urgents into the urgent folder and just go. dump everything else into the non-urgent folder. First change, <laughs> done, straight off the bat. Excellent. Well, I mentioned in my introduction, you've been a you know, successful investor, 30 plus uh, angel investments. How do you know, taking it back to the entrepreneurial side, got a lot of HR leaders here that are already entrepreneurs themselves. They've either invested in systems, they're developing systems, that they're working as consultants, self-employed, whatever it might be. How do you know when an investment or an idea is going to be successful? I mean, I, for example, does it does an idea need to have certain criteria for you to, before you even consider it? Or do you use any kind of benchmarking tools yourself to, to assess it? Or is it all done on, on instinct? I wish I could say that you looked at it and you knew it would work, but the answer is you don't. So yeah. there's no, no such guarantee or, or certain key metrics that you can see. It's been interesting for me because I didn't think angel investing was something for me. And this is probably very relevant for, for people listening in HR because you think it's only for super rich people, you know, people who have had an exit themselves from a company, which is something I'd have, but not to the point where I could just throw 50 grand at every company I liked. And I thought I'd very quickly use up, you know, my my light, my savings, my capital, my net worth if I did that. Honest, I think I thought I was one of those people. I think you needed to have like significant sums to be involved. So that's that, yeah. you're saying that's not the case. Um, and, and this is was a fairly new discovery for me. Like five years ago, you know, I thought maybe my future, if I was multi, multi, multi millionaire, like 10 million plus, I'd start doing it and be okay throwing away a million dollars, you know, like that. But I got involved with um, Jason Kalkanis's podcast this week in startups. Definitely recommend you have listened to that if you're interested in, in, in angel investing. And he wrote a book. So that's actually what I did. I, I read his book. Called, it's called Angel. Um, and he has this great philosophy where he talks about how 
it's about taking lots of little bets. It's not, you know, big bets and then doubling down on your winners. And when I thought little bets meant hundred grand, 50 grand, but he, yeah. he went as low as two grand. Like you okay. could literally, you know, if you're just getting started and you're earning a salary, you could take maybe six grand of your net worth each year and, and invest in three companies. If you really, you know, be careful with your, your money In my own net worth, I was like, I feel comfortable. I'll start with a hundred thousand and just, you know, see how I feel. And I felt that, you know, that was 5% of my net worth at the time, whatever I'm okay with it. So I read his book and then he also has a syndicate, which is a nice way to get started with this. If you've never angel invested before, um, syndicates are great because you've got a lead investor like a Jason, or you can go to angel.co and you can find all these other angel investors who run syndicates and they source the deals. They vet the deals. They give the information. They send it to the syndicate and us as individual investors can then choose to go in on that investment and, and where you go. So I did that first with by joining Jason Syndicate. It's free to sign up to an email list. Um, you have to be accredited. That's the downside, especially with the American investment rules. So you have to have sure. like a minimum $1 million net worth or earning at least 300000 a year, I think is the current criteria. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then, yeah, you can go and invest in, in these sorts of syndicates. Now, obviously, you don't have to do that. You could just literally just get, start hanging out at startup events and hopefully bump into the right people and, and then make your decision that way and throw, throw 5,000, 10,000 at them. And that's the thing to understand. A lot of angel investing early rounds, like a, a pre-seed or a seed round, really pre-seed more often than not, it's going to be very small amounts from a lot of people. You've got angel investors yeah. throwing in 5, 10, 20, maybe 50. More, more successful people might be throwing in 100, 200, but there's only one or two of those types of people in that round. Most of it is like a, like a small group of lots of money. So a small group of small amounts, but sure. many people. So that's how I started. And that was a nice way to dip my toe into it. And because it's now, I mean, like year four, I think of, of actually doing it consistently, you do start to see which companies rise up. Now, I will tell you, my initial investment thesis was pretty open. Um, I was like, well, I, I read these like notes from syndicates telling me about a potential investment and everything sounds amazing. You're like, yeah. you know, they're growing this fast. They've got <laughs> this many sales. Of course I'm going to, yes, yes. But then you do that and you realize you're saying yes to every single opportunity that comes your way and suddenly you've got no more money to invest. So um, what I did notice though, that there were certain characteristics, a, the founder, obviously, you know, how many have they had other startups? Usually second time, third time founders do better. Industry-wise, I thought I was going to go in and invest in education technology because I'd been in education online, uh, but that turned out not necessarily to be a, a good way to make a decision because I, I wasn't doing it at this stage anyway to be an advisor angel. I wanted to just angel invest. So to cut a long story short, <laughs> Nick, four years later, the companies that have like the four or five that I've seen emerge now that are at the point where they're worth 100 million, 200 million on the way to that billion dollar outcome you hope they get. I would never have guessed that those were the ones that would really? get there. There is no criteria I can tell you that will will be reliable. One of them is uh, Steezy, you mentioned in my intro. Yeah. It's a Netflix style dance classes. So dance classes, all you can eat, um, whatever you want. I basically almost didn't invest in that, but I was like, you know what? I could see a million people wanting to learn how to dance. Let's see if it works. I did a very small starting point, like $3,000 early investment. I didn't really believe that. And, you know, they're like a hundred million dollar company so far. If they 10X where they're at now, you know, it'd be a great result. Another one is like a pure lead generation tool, which 
I guess makes more sense, but it's like, it's kind of boring. It's like a SaaS tool for helping people prospect for new customers. It doesn't get me excited, but it's a, sure. a core need that, that people want. And then NutriSense is doing really well. And it's a, it's a sugar monitoring device you put on your shoulder and you got an app and you can see how your blood spikes based on what you eat. So I would never like, and the ones that have failed have, have been just as exciting and just as potentially great at the start. Um, one of my favorite ones is an Uber for cat sitting website called Meowtel, which is you <laughs> need you know someone to look after your cat. You use this website and someone comes over and looks after your cat. So, and they're doing really, really quite well. And then there's like, there's like 20 of them, 25 of them that are, you, you get their updates or you get no updates and you really see like, wow, they're growing so much slower or they pivoted two times. And you just, I, I honestly cannot see any way from the start that I could tell you, oh, I knew that that one was going to do well. And those ones wouldn't, there are no correlations. And that's why I'm, if I'm going to end this little, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> just dump of I'm, ideas I'm, here. I'm, I'm transfixed. I find it fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I never knew you could get in in such small amounts, to be honest. Though. Yeah, well, so, yeah. join Jason Syndicate's my, my first piece of advice. Yeah. The, if I can end this with the way I started it, Jason's advice about spreading further and wider as a strategy is the only thing I've seen that is conclusively good advice in angel investing because. I would not have reached 30 investments if I did this myself. I probably would have done five because that's all I would have been able to you know, be comfortable putting in. I would have spent 100 grand, put five lots of 25 in and call myself done. And probably because of the law of numbers, missed one because that's five potential wins. Instead, I spread it across 30, more than that, ideally, even better. Then, yeah, the one, two, three, or four winners pop up in that batch. Uh, and then I can put in another 10, another 10 in, in those winners, which is usually what I've done. So that to me has been the best and only pattern advice or general advice I can give you. Spread the net wide, double down on winners. Outside of that, I love following a syndicate if you really like the person. I'm such a fan of Jason because it's almost like a superpower for him. He's already hit like five or six unicorns. He's got a whole team and a, a, a like um, an accelerator. So they're always bringing in new companies, vetting them. And the accelerator is like the ultimate lead generation tool for finding new syndicate investments. Cause you, you work with that company, see how they spend that accelerator money, watch them get to the next level, learn about what kind of people they are. And the best people of that accelerator are then presented to you as a, as a syndicate member, do you want to invest in them? So if they've reached that point, they're already kind of really pre-qualified. Yeah. So I think for a person like myself, maybe like Unic, who, who's not going to make this their full-time gig. You don't want to go to all these events and do all this due diligence and really get to know everyone well, then, then syndicates are definitely the, you know, one of the better ways to do it. Personally, I'd like to get more out there. And you know, if maybe I'm in Canada, I'd love to find more Canadian companies, for example, be boots on the ground a bit. But right now, while I'm running my own companies, this is definitely the, the most, uh, you know, I think the smartest way to angel invest. Oh, really useful advice. I'll put a link into Jason's uh, in the show notes for those interested in finding out more. So I'll find that link and put it in the show notes. I appreciate that. So listen, something that's, um, that really struck me early on in this podcast is uh, just the amount you managed to do. We've talked a little bit about delegation, but let, let's be honest, you, you seem to do an awful lot of things, right? Like I mentioned in my introduction, you've even invested in a, in a solo um, farm in the Ukraine, which is producing sort of 3.6 megawatts. You're managing in, uh, Inbox Done, you're a host of your own show, Vested Capital, uh, which is not a great podcast. Again, I'll put that in the show notes for those that are interested. <laughs> uh, you run a coaching and a teaching business. So you're a business coach to other aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, and I'm sure there's some HR professionals in that on that list that you look after as well. How do you do it all successfully? Like, how do you time manage your own time? Where do you where do you find the time? 
I love this question because I remember listening to interviews when I was a young entrepreneur and I'd hear about these, you know, men and women who were doing kind of like my bio that you gave me. And I was like, how is that possible? Because it's not like I'm struggling to get one company going. I couldn't do anything else. So 20 years later, when I'm sitting on the other side of the table and I can answer that question and it's, it's very easy now to see the path that you can follow. So when you're just getting started, the, the advice to follow is to focus and pick one thing because you need cash flow. I, I'm, and I'm saying this assuming you're not born into a rich family and you know, sure. you're probably I say ca- not. I say cash is king, right? Especially in new business. Tech, yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. And, and we know that because we, we've got to pay for food and rent and we want to travel. And we haven't got enough money to do that. And we want to buy a car and a house and get some investments and buy some cryptocurrency and all these things. We just don't have money to do it. So you have to double down on whatever your cash flow source is. And that's all that matters. Don't get distracted by people who are doing multiple things because they probably have cash flow or some other source of income that allows them to spread further and wider. So first 10 years of my life, we're just getting that either one company going, then once it's going, make sure it keeps growing and then putting aside a bit of that money. So I'm growing a capital base, you know, buy some investments, just start building a base. And that's, that's 10 years of my life, you know, at least from 18 to 28, 29, when I hit my thirties, it's suddenly like, okay, you know, I've generated a million dollars in revenue over that time. Um, I've bought my first property. I bought an investment property. I have a car. I like, you can breathe a little, you know, then it's like, okay, now what's something bigger and more challenging and next level. But at that point, it's like, I don't need my next business to necessarily uh, support me from day one. So I can pick ideas that are a little bit different to what I used to choose, or I can add something to it. So I found, especially in like the last 10 years, my thirties, and now I'm in my early forties, that's when the opportunities to start multiple projects, other investments, build a solar farm, that starts to happen because I got leverage from things. I had, you know, I've built companies and sold them. I had companies that were doing great cash flow. Um, I invested, so investments grew, it gave me more of a stable base. Then it's like, okay, yeah, I can start a second company and a third company and, and I can do an angel investing and, and that, but I would never have considered it early on, at least certainly not on, on a big scale. And then the other thing to also consider is the power of co-founders and partnerships, you know, other people. This is, I think, HR people understand this really well. Um, Building bigger things require more people. And especially if you are like a leader, you're already running one company, starting a second one will hurt the first one. However, starting a second company with a co-founder where maybe you're leveraging, and this is an easy example for me to give, I'm running my coaching business uh, five, six years ago, when I just started thinking, I, I really want to build Inbox Done. I want to give that idea a go. It's been in the back of my mind for years, decades, really. Let's really give it a go. And I've met this person, Claire, who's working for me, who I think could be a great co-founder. Now, no way do I go and start Inbox Done without a, a Claire. I just would not have been had the time to hire the Inbox managers and train them and build a team and do all that HR type stuff. But, you know, I'm I'm running my coaching content business. I'm writing. I've built an email list. I have a database. So I come to Claire and say, listen, I have this idea. I want to test it. I want to be my co-founder. I'll bring the clients because I have a base of an audience now that I've built up. You will grow the team and see if this is a profitable business. Five years later, it is. And we're running that company. But there's no way I I do that without Claire. And there's no way Claire can do it without me because I brought the audience. I brought the customer base. 10 years ago, 
neither of us could have done either of those things. I had no yeah. customer base and, you know, it doesn't work that way. We have to build our first income streams, whether that's a job or, or a business. So it happens in phases. And when you reach the phase where you've got assets that you can leverage, then you just get that thing that we're, we all learn about when we start studying business books and investment books. You, you only have so many hours in the day. So you have to make either money work for you. You have to use systems, software, automation, and you have to build teams and have other people who can do things, perform functions. For me, Richard Branson, when I read his first book, Losing My Virginity, all the way back, um, and I was like 18, 19, and I was like, how is this guy so successful? And he realized, oh, it's create a company, stick an amazing executive team in there yeah, to run yeah. it, and then go do something else, because that's all he does, <laughs> right? Over and over and over again. So that's how you can be an owner of so many big successful companies because he doesn't run any of them. He never did. He was the marketing guy. He was jumping out of balloons sure. and you know all kinds of stuff. So it's that a bit to me like, was uh, Alan Sugar on The Apprentice, right? You know, invest in their right. businesses, but he's not running them. He gets the the guys that uh, come with the business idea to go and run with their dreams and their passion projects, and he's the financier or brings the contacts, whatever it might be, for sure. Yeah. And of course, if you've got you your in, if you've got inbox done managing your emails, as you obviously would have, uh, yeah, yep. everything makes it a little bit easy. You've got those that you know that chain that I've got around my neck at the minute already uh, already sorted out and, and managed. Yeah, and and this is a uh, like it's important to understand. This is like a strategy of, of multiple income streams too. Like like Alan Sugar and, and Richard Branson and myself to a smaller degree than those guys. It's a form of stability. Like I built this solar farm, um, and, and we're talking about that now as potentially Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And I don't even know if my solar farm will be mine sure. in the next yeah, few no, years, right? I don't know fair what's going to happen, right? Yeah. In fact, when this I'm if goes live, that may have that may yeah, have happened. Yeah. That may have already happened by the time this is we're, we're out, and I'm, I'm hoping it's a good outcome for everyone, and no one's died. But you know, it is what it is. Um, but it's not my entire net worth. There's there's a different things. There's angel investments that could come back. There's a company that's running. There's, there's a new company I'm spinning up. There's an old company that's I'm closing down. And all of those things would have to fail for everything to fail. Like that, That's what I think is the most important part here too. It is important at the beginning to focus because you have to just put all your energy to get one machine running, but you don't want to make that your only machine longer term because it's all your eggs in one basket you know one market downturn one country invading another and suddenly yeah. that business is no longer there so you know you've got to have uh you got so to this, this links grow. to the diversification doesn't it just having as yeah. you said all the eggs in one basket and actually you know there, there are you can align that with hr strategy anyway with the diversity of boards diversity of thought diversity of collaboration all those things the more diverse in investing with the more diverse your team more diverse your business typically the better the results and certainly the, the, the more secure your results as well so yeah. yeah it's an interesting interesting to play so we're going to quickly open uh, the lnd vault so quite interested in these uh answers you're going to give me here Yari. these are just short sharp quick questions for you Opening the L and D vault. Uh, the first one is this. In hindsight, what's the one thing you now know that you wish you'd known when you began your career? I wish I was quicker to build teams and delegate. Uh, it may be a cliche answer given what I do now and what we talked about, but I really held myself back because I would try and keep as much of the profit and might've been a small profit to myself. I just brought on one person. You might've been able to double the company. And then triple it, and then I'd have a bigger pie and sure. you know bigger team. Yeah, yeah, nice. Uh, if you can give one piece of advice to the world right now, and that's the world of business leaders, uh, what would it be? I thought you were going to give me a nice big political question. I'd be like, don't invade each other. Countries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to business leaders, one piece of advice. Honestly, to, to kind of be on the other side of the equation with delegation, you have to understand 
that your company is not the only thing that's important. So the reason we do delegate is so we can exercise, so we can live longer, so we can spend time with our families, uh, do whatever it is that is important to us outside of business. So it's a yin and a yang, and you really got to have that balance. And unfortunately, that I feel like that is personality type is an issue as a anyone is a leader because you just want to keep building the thing you're building and get better at it and better at it. And it's addictive and it's often to the detriment of everything else going on in your life. So that's why you do delegate and why you bring yeah. on help and build teams to t- create that great flexibility. Advice. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Uh, if you had the opportunity now, what advice would you give? Uh, we may have answered this in your first question, but what advice would you give to a younger uh, Yaris Darek who's just starting out in the new world of work? Yeah. I, I won't repeat my, my previous answer. I, I, I would sort of maybe add to it and say, just think a little bigger. I was holding myself back from fear is the short answer. So bigger ideas, bigger companies, bigger goals, and, and really not being afraid to go after them. Super. And my last question is this, and this is interesting because you're a business coach of many entrepreneurs as well. So in your view, what is the guiding principle behavior that you've seen in every great leader that you've worked with? Ooh, I have to say the most important thing, or at least the thing I see that results in success more than anything else is that I will keep doing this until something works attitude versus the, I will stop doing something the minute I notice it's not working or something changes, or I feel self-doubt or someone criticizes me or my family says this is stupid. You know, the people who do it and do it anyway, because they want the outcome. And that might be not even the business they're running now. They might close that one down and start another one, but they so desperately want to have some kind of success whatever that is, I don't know what that is. Like a a spark of determination of chutzpah is something in certain people that they just keep pushing through until they get their outcome. And I I wish you could bottle up and sell that, but it's It's drive, isn't it? It's drive and passion. Yeah. No, fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the the HLND podcast. They, of course, as I mentioned earlier, many links are going to include in the show notes. I'll add to, add to those links as well following this interview. But if you want to find out more about uh, Yara's business, you've got inbox.done.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, he's the author of six books. One of those you can actually get a free copy of on uh, Amazon Kindle. So I'll put the Amazon link in there and a link to uh, your, your blog as well. Um, you also create and host of your own podcast, Vested Capital. So there'll be a link to that show for those interested in finding more about that, as well as various um, other sort of social links to Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So yeah. Absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you ever so much for joining us. And of course, if you are an HR or LD professional listening to this show and you need support with an HR related vacancy, please do give myself or my wonderful team a call. Perhaps email the team rather than myself this time around, trying to reduce my inbox. I've got some great, great guys on my team that can support you. Uh, our website is www.jjrecruitment.com. Just needs me to say a huge thank you for joining me today. And I look forward to bringing you the next episode of the HR LD podcast real soon. Thank you, Yara. Thanks, mate. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.